The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so St. Jerome um, was quoted with saying this. Augustine sometimes gets the credit, but as far as I can tell, St. Jerome said this, the scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching bottom. Well, that is, that is so true as you come to know the Word of God. We're now in, in Luke 19. It's taken us over a year and a half, I think, to get here, if my math is correct. And for the next numerous months, we're going to slow down and essentially look at a week, but really about 48 hours. That's really what we're going to look at. And it's going to, it's going to take time. And you might be thinking like, whew, that's, that's a long time to talk about one week. I was having a, a conversation with a friend of mine this week over coffee, and she had said, you know, when you told us that you were, we were going to go and go through Luke for about two years, I laughed out loud in the church service because I thought you were kidding. I now realize you were not kidding. And she then said, and I got to tell you, Pastor Scott, I thought when I heard that, this is going to be so boring. How are we going to endure for two years? Now, I appreciate, she, and she was being very serious. Now, I can understand why someone would say that. Now, she would say a year and a half plus into it, she would say, man, there's just so much that you, you leave on the table. That's so true of the Word of God. And so, as we, as we look at what we would say is the Lord's passion or passion week, the week of his great suffering, not only internally, but certainly upon a cross, there are going to be times where we're just skimming the surface and you're going to be like, man, we, we didn't touch on that. And there's going to be times where we just take our time and we deep dive a little bit more. Here's what I want to encourage you all in. No matter where you're at, trust that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. Just trust that he's going to teach you. There's going to be things that you get and you'll be thankful for. And there'll be things that you do not get. And, and you'll be like, am I not getting it? No, you're getting it exactly where the Lord has you now. The Word of God is living and active. So you could read this in five more years and you could take three years to read it and you'll be like afresh. Wow, it's like I had never read this before because that's how the Word of God works in your life. So don't be comparing about, well, this person seems to understand it more and this person doesn't. Just be happy to know that you're understanding. If you understand nothing more than this, that you're a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior and he willingly went to the cross to die in your place so that you might have life with God forever, you know the mountaintop of it all. The mountaintop of it all. That is the point. That's the crescendo. And that he resurrected from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that you can live with God forever. Okay? So all that as a way of essentially introduction. Here's the thing, though. With Jesus, it's, it's really, really easy to be complicated. And it's, it's really difficult to be, let's say, simple, not simplistic. I think there are times we're trite with Jesus and with his word, and we, we try to just water it down to the point where it's palatable. Um, and, and Jesus won't let us do that. And the reason that's a challenge is because when it comes to Christ, when it comes to his life, his resurrection, his death, and, and who he is, fully God, fully man, Jesus was and is much more than people imagine. He just simply is. And so 
When we look at this text, which is known as Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry. If you're familiar with church uh, and, and if you grew up in the church, um, then, then that would be something you're probably accustomed to hearing. There would be a Sunday. I remember going to a church service and they handed out palm branches and they talked about what that meant. But for years, I never understood it. So I'm hopeful that you understand it more today. I'm hopeful that you understand it in a way that you can have a better picture of who Christ is. So let's look at Luke 19, and we're going to look at 28 through 36 as our first section. Um, They do wonderfully read the scripture uh, in whole, Uh, and now we're just going to work our way through it. So follow along with me, if you would. And when he had said these things, what are these things? Okay. You're like, man, we didn't get far. I know. I want to make sure we're in context, okay? When he said these things, what things did he say? The parable that he just told, the parable of the minas, right? The things of, hey, bring these evildoers, these rebellious people, these people who do not want me to rule over them, bring them to me and slaughter them in front of me. That's the things he said. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Um, Pause. Try that this week. Not really. Go, I just, I walk here each Sunday, right? It's not that far. My house is very close. And every time I walk past a Tesla that's plugged in, the cord's literally coming out of their window and gone right into the car. So just try that this week. Just unplug it, right? And just, you know, hop in. It won't start for you. Maybe some of you know how to jack it. I've hung out with some of you. I believe that. Um, <laughs> and, and if the owner comes out and says, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Just be like, it's okay, man. The Lord has need of it. (laughs) And just drive off. It will not end well. And just to be clear, I'm not encouraging you to do that, Gabe. Um, Right? So, So don't try that. But this is exactly what Jesus says to do. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as they, he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. By the way, just for sake of interesting uh, thought, the translation is actually probably more accurate to say, its Lord needs it. I like that better. Um, now, how does this happen? Did Jesus talk to this guy? I don't know. We, we don't know. And I, I don't even want to speculate. But its Lord has need of it. Its Lord needs it. He's the Lord of this colt. He's the Lord of this young donkey. Jesus is the Lord of all. And and so there they go. And when they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. Um, Like I said, this is often referred to Palm Sunday. Although in Luke's account, there is no palms. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't. Luke's just not highlighting it. Why? Well, primarily Luke's writing to a Gentile audience, and they wouldn't even understand that, right? And so I want you to imagine the scene that's before us. I will tell you this, though. It's very foreign to us. It's hard to think about because to our modern eyes, this is an interesting display, right? Uh, But not 
It's not lost on the people of Israel. The people of Israel know exactly what's happening in this moment. Now, they may not understand it fully, but they understand what Jesus is saying by riding on a donkey and coming into Jerusalem during the week of Passover. They get it. They understood that King Jesus was drawing near, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who had been promised from the lineage of long before King David. But since King David, they're waiting for him, and here he is. All the songs, all the old songs, all the psalms, we would call them, would come flooding back, and they would begin to sing them. They would begin to chant. They would begin to cheer. And there would be laughing because finally God has heard our cries, and he has sent the long-awaited king, and here he is. Finally, all their prayers were going to be realized. Now, I will say this. They were not going to be realized in the way that they would hope or even the way that they would expect. But know this, this would not be a triumphal entry as Romans would have thought. I mean, this, this would not, their pomp would look way different, right? If they have Caesar coming in, it looks way different than, hey, go untie a you know, young donkey and let's get Caesar mounted up on that bad boy and slap it in the rear end and get him riding on in. It would not look like that. They would come in. They would have military trappings. They would have trophies of war. They would have captives. They, they would have Caesar, probably not even riding on a horse unless they were coming to do war. He would be coming in, and there would be all this spectacle so that everybody would know that this is the one who's in charge of Rome. And that's not how Jesus comes. Why not? Well, there's a lot of answers for that question, but first off, because Jesus comes the first time as, as a king, but as the king who brings peace between God and man. He's not coming to make war. He's coming to make war on Satan, sin, and death. Be sure of that, right? He's coming to actually make it so that enemies who are warring against God can actually become friends. He's coming as the king who brings peace. Okay, so that's, that's our first point. Jesus is a triumphant king that brings peace. <laughs> He's an odd sort of king. This is an odd sort of way to enter in to say the time has arrived. And, but Israel sees it and they're like, yes, this is Messiah. But they're wrongly thinking that this means war now for Rome. They don't get it. They will get it. Some will get it anyway. Israel didn't understand that Jesus had come to, to deliver all of humanity. All of humanity, not just Israel. See, they, they, they thought very nationalistic. He was coming to deliver all of humanity from an even more deadly enemy than Rome. Namely, Satan, sin, death. And here's the one we often just don't think about. His father's wrath. He, that's, he's coming to deliver people from the wrath of God. How? Because it's Passover week, and he's going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he do that? He's going to become a substitute for us, for sinners in our place. Well, no wonder they didn't get it. But I, I don't want you to think that this is by coincidence or by chance or this just happened to come to be. This is all a very intentional fulfillment of Bible, particularly Zechariah about 500 years before God put on flesh, namely in Christ, and, and entered humanity, 
This future king was portrayed uh, in humility riding a colt. So look with me, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 should be on your screen. It is. Thank you, team. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Pause. When we were singing the second song, I think it was, I find our culture to be very interesting. We are singing shout hallelujah, okay, but we whisper it. I don't mind. I think it's a cultural thing that we do, right? We're just singing it like very sing-songy, shout hallelujah, right? And, but this is shout, like triumphant. Our king is here. He's finally come, right? This is way more exciting than a Steeler football game because it almost always ends in them losing. He, Jesus doesn't lose, right? So shout, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the fowl of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And listen, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. This is who they're longing for. 500 years later, here he is and they are shouting that. Why? Because they get what's being said and they get what's being done and so many times we'll often hear people say, well, the same people who are shouting hallelujah and throwing their cloaks down are shouting crucify a few days later. Here's what I would tell you. I wouldn't be so quick to say that because in the text, it says the disciples. The disciples are shouting. The disciples are saying. So they get it. They understand King Jesus. Surely not everyone in that crowd does, but they knew. They knew without absolute any question that Jesus was identifying himself as Messiah. And he's coming. And they viewed Jesus as their deliverer, although they didn't understand what that meant. And indeed he was. So Jesus enters Jerusalem as the Messianic king. And his coming as the Lord brings joy or calamity. You got to get this, right? This is a joyous moment, but it won't be joyous for everyone. And what depends on whether it's joyous or calamity is whether you receive the king, as he says he is, right? And that was true then, and that's definitely true now. The disciples got it. Look, look with me at Luke 19, 37 to 40, as the story continues. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and here they go, they're quoting Psalm 18, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, they're not calling him Lord, teacher, rebuke your disciples, tell them to shut up. That's what they're saying. That's my translation. And he said, I tell you, Jesus said, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees have been telling people to shut up all along as Jesus marches his way into Jerusalem. Because they're starting to understand, he's saying that he's Messiah. They're not confused. They just don't agree, and they do not like it. And so they're saying, disciples, shut up. And Jesus, he's been telling them, 
It's not now. Don't tell other people this. But finally, it's like, no, no, I'm done telling them to be quiet. They get it. It's time they shout. And if they don't shout, oh, creation will. Why? Because you can't shut it up. You can't shut it up. You're trying to shut up the fact that I'm Messiah. But the trees will sing it out if you do not allow this praise to come forth. And the the Pharisees, they, they understood it. The disciples understood in a way they didn't. But as they're entering the city, they see Jesus as a king and they put him up on the horse as though you're putting a king on a throne. And they're throwing down the cloaks like you're rolling out the red carpet. Why? Because Messiah's here. Messiah's here. We've been journeying towards Jerusalem and it's time. So the king's on the throne, but the Pharisees don't approve. Why? Well, because Jesus is, is going to wreck their system of making money and power. Jesus, as the king in the parable of the ten minas, was opposed, right? Just as Jesus right now is being opposed by the Pharisees. They do not want Jesus to rule over them. Why? They want to rule, okay? And so Jesus responds by telling them, praise has to bust forth. You can't stop it. Don't miss the irony here, right? Even inanimate creation can see what's happening here, and you're to be the teachers of the law, and you can't see it. That's horrifying. If you and I would have hung out with Pharisees in that day, we would have, I'm telling you, we would have thought, these are the people who really see and understand Jesus. And they don't get it. They're very blind to the reality of who Christ is. Now, part of it is their own ignorance, but part of it is because they don't want to see him. They do not want to see Jesus as he is. They want him to be who they say he is, and he will not do that. And oh, how tempting it is to do that in our own walk with Jesus Christ. How tempting it is to do that, to make Jesus in our own image, to to come to the Word of God and say, oh, I don't like that text. It makes me uncomfortable. I'll just go to the happy text, and we have our own happy text. Most of them are on our Instagram pages and on our fridge. We never have a real picture, necessarily, of who Christ is. It's not on our coffee mugs, but Jesus will not let you make him into your image. Jesus is saying, there's a better way. I'm the perfect God, man. You're made in my image. Know me. Because you've got to know this. We become who we behold. It's just true. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians. You'll see it all throughout the Bible. But I don't have to go there to tell you it's true. When I was younger, you won't find a picture of me for about three years. This might explain a lot with me without a cape. You just won't. I I was infatuated with Superman right? I had Subarus, I had the cape, and for three years, I mean, we could be at a wedding. My parents should have definitely put up better boundaries, but everywhere I was, there I am with a red cape, and I really, because I thought, this is the guy. I want to be like him. I'm, I'm telling you that when you see Christ properly, and he's always, he's never changing, but he's always changing who we understand him to be from the clear revealed word of scripture it grows with us as we grow with him and as we see him more clearly and as we receive him for who he really is this is the fuel that the holy spirit gives for you to become more like jesus and it's grace
So when we come to the Word of God, I don't care how well you know it, ask God to teach you more. Ask Him to show you more. Ask Him to reveal more of God's goodness, His kindness, His mercy, His grace, His love to you. Why? So that you'll behold Him. So that you'll adore Him. Because you, you won't truly praise the one you don't adore. Your lips might say it, but your heart would be far from it. And if those two don't match, Jesus says, you worship me in vain. And we don't want vain worship here. We want real worship. And I know you do too. And I'm just trying to explain to you how that happens. It is a gift of grace, but it's a gift of sight when we come to the word of God and ask him, reveal more of yourself. It shouldn't be surprising that our finite brains struggle to understand an infinite God. It just shouldn't be hard to consider that, right? I, I've been married for, oh, I better be careful. Ooh, I think it'll be 23 years in April. Uh, if I'm wrong, Jess will forgive me. And, um, but it's close. I, it's 22, 23. Anyway, here's what I know. I know my wife, and my wife knows me. But do I think I know her infinitely? No, there's parts of her I'm just beginning to understand. And, and I'm thankful for that. The, why? Because that's how relationships work. Now, if that's true of two very finite beings, how, how much more true should it be to say, I know God, oh, but I don't know God, and I want to know Him more. Oh, so reveal yourself to me, Lord. I want to know you. See, if you see Jesus for who He truly is, then you cannot help but break forth in praise, in worship, and, and have this news transform your life, right? Why? Because nothing can stop it. Creation itself has been singing the praise of Jesus since its birth, not since his birth. Jesus, as humanity, has had a birth, but God, Jesus, as God, has always existed, there has never been a time that there is not Christ. He's eternal. He's the eternal God. I want to show you that in a text in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. See, Jesus would know that creation's been singing his praises since it happened because he was there. Now listen, listen to the language and revisit it today in your own time because we're going we're gonna to go through it quick, but you need to see Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you ever wonder why Man, magnify Jesus. They talk a lot about Jesus. They sing about Jesus all the time. They pray, and when they pray, they talk about Jesus. And when we hang out, they talk about Jesus. The reason is because it's all about him. There's the spoiler alert. The whole Bible, it's, it's not about so that your kids will behave, and it's not about so you can learn some moral lessons or any of those things. Those things might happen, but it's all about Jesus Christ the King. Everything. Everything in your life. Well, I don't view it that way. It doesn't change the truth of that reality. And so 
any attempt to stop his praise would only create the creation to sing his praise. So Pharisees, you can try to stop it. It won't happen. I must be worshiped, is what Jesus is saying. It will happen. And and that's where we're at. His power and his goodness are so deep that in Isaiah, it says this, the mountains and the hill will burst into song before the king of kings. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands in praise of him. Yeah, it's poetic. But what it's saying is all creation must worship King Jesus. This must happen. It will happen. Such praise will... extend to the very ends of the earth and beyond, right? It will resound in the greatest depths of the sea to echo his greatness. I don't know what that will look like, but you will see it. You will see it. You will hear it. What does it sound like when a tree sings the praise of Jesus? I don't know, but I do know this, that when he returns fully, finally, and forever, you're going to know. And so the question becomes, if you're going to worship him for eternity, Why not now? Why not embrace him now? Why not worship him as he is now? Why not enjoy him now? See, all humans will confess King Jesus. It's it's not a matter of if. It's it's a matter of when and why. Where do I see that? I see that in Philippians 2, 9 and 11. 9 through 11. Look with me. This is, so therefore, I, I can't teach the whole book of Philippians, but it's coming out of this great picture of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ. And and Paul says, therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. This tongue is more than just this little thing that you stick out and you can, you know, stick it out at your mom and you can sometimes roll it like a little hot dog thing, right? It's more than that. It's every tongue, tribe, nation, every language will worship King Jesus, okay? And so he's saying every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you ever think about this? I mean, every knee... Every tongue, willingly or unwillingly, will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he is worthy to be praised. The the only options that we really have, will we praise him for his mercy and his grace as we've received it? Or or will you praise him for his right judgments? Now, we'll praise him as Christians for both. But there are people who who think, well, I'm not going to worship Jesus. And I'm like, well, there, there will be a day you will. And I don't say that with some arrogant pride. I wouldn't worship King Jesus if the Holy Spirit of God had not revealed his love to me. And the same is true for you. So we ought to have a humble disposition. But humble doesn't look like we don't talk about Jesus. Humble doesn't look like we don't get excited to praise and worship and enjoy Jesus. Don't confuse meekness for weakness. The world needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you don't, creation will scream it out. But why would we not? Jesus has come to save sinners. 
from the wrath of God. He delights to save. He has come to seek and to save. That's still in chapter 19. This is still the same king. Don't pit the two against each other. Know that they complement one another. The severity of God and the love of God, it's all God. Why do we parse them out? I like the loving God. You can't have a loving God if you don't have a God of justice. And we understand both of these a little more clearly when we understand the cross. We see the wrath of God and the love of God and the mercy of God come together on the Son of God who did not have to die in your place, but so willingly and happily did for the joy that was set before him. Why? Because he loves to save. (laughs) He delights to save. Oh, how he loves you. At the moment of conversion, everyone who really believes confesses the lordship of Christ. Now, you might might not say it that way, but think back to Zacchaeus. Nobody told him, you have to do this, you have to give half of this. He just said, you're Lord, and here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And he's like, man, salvation has come to this home, right? Jesus is saying, he gets it. He sees me. He understands. Why? Because he's not saying, well, now what must I do? He's saying, I can't help but just give of myself, to give of my life, to give of my time, to give of my treasure, to give of my talents. Why? Because I see you. (laughs) I was lost, and now I'm found. And I'm pretty jazzed about that, Jesus, so I'm going to follow you. Where are you going? It don't matter, because wherever you're going, I'm going with you. And this this is what it looks like to worship. In the final judgment, every unconverted person will also confess the lordship of Christ. On that last day, unbelievers will acknowledge that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Have you ever thought about it? Every demon and even Satan himself will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. The universal recognition of this will be to the glory of God the Father, who is far greater than you and I can even comprehend, although we ought to strive to know him in that way. In the end, Jesus Christ will receive praise and glory from the entire created order. It has to happen. It's just a matter of when, and it's a matter of why. So attempting to silence the disciples here, or even silencing Jesus, will not stop the praise that has to come. When We're reading through the Old Testament as a church, um, and if you're like, well, I am not, and I wish I would have known, we, we can catch you up. Talk to me after the service, right? I know some crazy guys here who are trying to read the whole Bible in 30 days. That's insanity, but go get it, right? That's like, I couldn't even imagine. Um, but I'm just glad that they're engaging in that way, right? Here's the thing. As you read through the Bible, what you're going to quickly realize is that this thing's not primarily about you. We want to contort it to be that. We want to twist it to be that. We want to take text and make them say things that they don't actually mean so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves because we actually don't want a good Savior. We want just some good advice. But as you read it, what you're going to realize is, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my glory, for my majesty, my, 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 oh my, how I've had it so wrong. The king comes in, and a select few get it. And what's their aim until the day they drop? To help others get it. That's it. We're going to go through the book of Acts in 12 weeks. It will happen, God willing. 
you're going to just see that, man, they've met Christ. They've seen him publicly crucified. They have witnessed him resurrected, and it has changed everything. And their whole aim is, so how do we live in light of this reality? And they go forth telling the good news of Jesus Christ. And what God does in that moment is he gathers worshipers. That's what he does. He gathers worshipers who will enjoy him, will know him, will sing his praise. Okay, I got a picture. Okay, I got a picture of Jesus. Well, he continues. Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, within you, I'm sorry. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, rejecting King Jesus had and has terrible consequences. You know, Jesus predicted the total destruction of this city in very shocking terms. Um, it should cause us to think back to the parable of the ten minus, right? Because he, he's saying, okay, that was a parable, but if you think it doesn't have stunning realities for the world you're living in, you're not paying attention. This judgment that he's speaking of actually didn't come to pass until A.D. 70. And if you know church history, and I don't expect that you do, but if you do, then what you know is the Roman army laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it. And when they destroyed it, they destroyed the temple along with it. And if you understand the temple and its purpose, it was the place where heaven and earth met, okay? It's, it's the place where you could only actually worship God, particularly the way it was let's say, revealed in the Old Testament, okay? It was the place where worship would truly happen, a place of sacrifice. Now, there's no temple. And Israel, who's not trusting in Jesus as their Messiah, longed for the day that the temple would be rebuilt. I've been there. I've seen its ruins. And if you go there now, you would actually see that there's a, a mosque on Temple Mount, and they're worshiping a false god named Allah. And you think, that's not kind. It's true. It's not unkind. You would also see the Dome of the Rock, and around it, all around it, in Arabic, you would see that God has no son. And, and they are definitely pointing a finger at Jesus, saying, you're not God. And Israel, who loves God, doesn't know Jesus, is at a thing called the Wailing Wall, and what they're doing is they're praying for Messiah to come, and they don't know he has. And it's actually a sad place to be, although there are things there to enjoy. I've been there. They don't get it. We should pray that they do. Okay? We should pray that God would reveal that. But Jesus was telling Israel, if you do not understand, if you cannot hear, you can feel, and that happened in AD 70. But here's what I would tell you, and, and this goes back even to last week. You and I needed to be very careful not to get a distorted picture of Jesus as some bloodthirsty king. Okay? Don't miss the, the beginnings where it says, and he wept over the city. He wept. This isn't like little, like, uh, you know, Hallmark Channel cry, where you got one tear. How does one eye cry and one eye doesn't? I don't know. And they just go like this. And they wipe it away. 
Now, this is sobbing. This is weeping. Why? Because Jesus understood the terrible fate that was coming upon his people. He understood the judgment that was coming. He understood that they, they don't want you. They're rejecting you again. This is just like the garden. Adam, Eve, have at it, baby. Be naked and enjoy life. And every tree, every fruit, you can enjoy it all except for this one. Don't do that because the day you do that, boy, the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But I'm not some you know, cruel taskmaster. I want you to enjoy it all. As a matter of fact, Adam, I'm going to give you an opportunity to rule over creation. I'm going to give you an opportunity to manage this thing. You're not God, but you're my guy. And Eve, I want you guys to just link arms. You're one flesh. Enjoy life. Enjoy me. And they said, we don't want you. And now here is Israel, God's people, his chosen people. And they're saying, I don't want you. And, and Jesus weeps. And so a second picture of who Christ is that we get is Jesus is a compassionate king that wept over blind eyes. See, Jesus' posture towards this rebellious city is one of compassion. And that has always been his heart, by the way. It's always the heart of God. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God desires that, that all would come to know him, to receive him, to enjoy him, and to be with him. Now that's not going to be the reality. We, we want to think that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. But that is God's heart. That is his desire. And therefore, we must meditate on this picture of Christ, the tenderness of Christ, the tenderness of God. This is not a picture that we generally have in our minds when we think of a king, or at least not what I think of when I watch movies about kings. They do not come in riding on a donkey, weeping. They come in riding on a horse to crush, to lord over, to control, to lay siege. But that's not our king. And if Jesus wept with compassion over this city, shouldn't that be the posture of our heart towards a city that doesn't know him? And not only doesn't know him, doesn't want to know him, doesn't want anything to do with him. It's, it's not because people aren't trying to engage these folks. It's because they're blind. So we, we, we go to the throne of grace and we ask God to reveal I, I love the conversation. Hey, Pastor Scott, can we talk about evangelism? How do I share good news with my friends? And, and I'm so excited to have that conversation. I want to have more of those conversations. But can I just tell you, if you begin nowhere else, pray. And I'm not giving you a cop out here. I'm saying pray. Why? Because what they need is the same thing you and I need. They need a miracle of sight. They need to be able to see. They need to be able to hear. They need to be able to believe. And this is all the work of God. We should weep over the city of Greensburg. We should weep over the nations who do not yet know Christ. But then we must be willing to cross the street <laughs> to tell them. We must speak good news to them. And, and to speak good news means that you're going to have a, a bad news message in there or you're not teaching the gospel, right? And so 
God help us to do that. But I will say this, this is where we also must be careful not to create Jesus into something he's also not. And that is some wimpy king who just, right? Because I think the, the temptation is, well, I, I, don't, I struggle with Jesus as a king to rule and to reign. I love compassionate King Jesus. Well, they're the same king. But I think the mistake that can happen right now is we can think that his meekness is actually weakness when it's, it's not. It's absolutely... Jesus wept because his heart pulsates pulsates with furious rage and furious love. And if you think those are incompatible, then you don't understand love. I'm not saying rage as in like, oh, you know, he's just like some unhinged little deity that just wants to throw rocks at people. No, but his anger towards people's rebellion drove him to the cross. His compassion in the same way drove him to the cross. So please, let's never make the mistake of making some, Jesus into someone he's not. And where do we see this? Well, look, look with me in Luke 19, 45 through 48. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. See, Luke's account of cleansing the temple is, is actually much shorter than all of the other Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, uh, John. Because it leaves out the version of him flipping tables. It leaves out the version of him uh, making a whip, right? It, it leaves out the, the judgment of the, the fig tree that's not blossoming, that really points to Israel. But it's no less severe. When we take all those pictures and we put them together, what we see is that Jesus, I mean, just imagine this. He comes in, he's overturning tables, coins go flying everywhere, right? Like roaches when the lights come on. That's what you should picture. And now Jesus is quoting, he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 4, that in his anger, righteous, perfect, holy anger, he's angry that people have made the place where heaven and earth meet a place where they profit. And he's not pleased. This is not the serene Jesus that we often imagine in our mind, the gentle shepherd with a lamb cradled in his arms, with children on his lap, with feathered hair blowing in the wind while he sits in a meadow. This is the God who actually flung stars, carved out mountains, carved out canyons at the moment of creation because there was never a time that he wasn't. But then the question becomes, why? Why did he do this? Why is he so angry? Well, I think there's many reasons, but I will tell you this. It's not a divine temper tantrum that Jesus is having right here. It's, it's really a cosmic battle between God and the domain of darkness that's working hard to divert God's sovereign grace and for him to be worshipped. And for him to be worshipped. He's angry at human religion that works hard to distort the gospel of grace, 
This is the place. And guess where they're at? They're in the court of Gentiles. They're in the place where the only place where the nations were allowed to be to come and to pray. So if you were a Gentile, not a Jewish man or a woman who had been circumcised and grew up in the tribe of Benjamin or some other tribe, you could go to this court and and had you been converted, think Rahab, and you could go there and you could worship God. You could praise God. You could pray. It would be a place where they could engage in the temple. And it was the only place they were allowed to be. And God's people said, we don't want you here. And so much that we don't want you here, we're just going to set up a little bookstore. Just kidding. Bookstores aren't the same thing. What was really happening here was they were setting up a system. And the system was this. You come to worship God during Passover, guess what you need? You need a sacrifice. You need it. There is no worship of God apart from sacrifice. That's still true, by the way. It will cost you something. It costs Jesus his life. But they would come, and because they would come long and far, guess what they didn't want to bring? Often, they didn't want to bring their farm animals. And so guess what? People would take advantage of that, and they would say, we have farm animals. It's going to cost you this. And they would charge them a ton of money, and it would go into the exchange of the money of the Romans and this and that. But the point remains the same. They were taking advantage of God's people when God's people were just seeking to worship God. Now, do you think God in the flesh is happy about that? He's not. This is why he responds. And so this is the third point and the final point. Jesus is a courageous king that clears the way for proper worship. And this is what he's doing. Why? Because these people are not just stealing money from God's people. They're seeking to rob God of worship. That's why. And God's very serious about this. It's sobering. It's a sobering reminder that, that, that Jesus is not so one-dimensional as we want him to be. He's, he's much more multifaceted. Yes, he's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, but he is also a conquering king. Yes, he's compassionate, but he is also courageous. It shouldn't be shocking that God is complex, but he makes it as simple for a baby to understand. Why? Because he's kind, and he wants you to know him. Why? Because if you know him, the more you know him, the more you love him. King Jesus, who sovereignly rules, also weeps. He rages. He tears down, he builds, and he, divine, he, he defies all our attempts at domesticating and dethroning him. He won't allow it. He's not a house cat. The God we worship is the Ancient of Days. He is the Lord of Armies. He is the Almighty Maker of Heaven and of Earth. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is not to be trifled with, but you can come very close to him. Why? Because he's made every way. Why? So that you can worship him in spirit and truth anywhere you are. You do not have to be in a temple. You do not have to be in this place. You can worship him anywhere. Because why? Because now God's people are the temple. And I wish we had another hour and a half to talk about that. And we don't. And we don't. He is an odd sort of king. But he's our king. Get to know him. Let me finish with a quote. It's from C.S. Lewis's book and movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. 
Is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, she says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. If you don't know the book, this is weird. Uh, <laughs> who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Yeah, G- Jesus is not safe. You're having a moment. I love it. Um, Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. He's so good. Church, get to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to endure the cross for sinners like us. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to be arrested um, unjustly, to be beaten, to be killed by humans whom you created. (laughs) Lord, we thank you that death could not hold you. Lord, we thank you that you have triumphantly resurrected from the grave and that you rule and reign in heaven at the right hand of God Almighty and you call everyone everywhere to come happily and to bend knee and to confess that Jesus is king. Lord, thank you for suffering the injustice Father, thank you for sending Jesus to to not cower away, but for the joy that was set before him to endure the cross. Jesus, thank you for being willing to do such a thing. We're thankful that Satan's sin and death had no claim upon you. Jesus, we thank you that you have triumphed over the grave, over death, and that you've made a way for sinners like us to draw near to a holy God and to know you and to love you, and to enjoy you, and to worship you forever. Oh God, help us. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to enjoy you more fully. Help us to be more like you. Lord, whatever it takes to rid our hearts, to flip tables in our hearts that need to be flipped, to rid out things that would distract us from enjoying you and loving you, Lord, have your way. You do not need permission, but, but humbly we ask you to do this, to make us more like you. And we know that that process involves often much pain, but we know this, you do not waste an ounce of suffering. You make it, you bend it, you force it to submit to the God of all joy and to make us more like you. Lord, do that, we ask in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.